Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the U.S. Chamber Foundation's Path Forward series. Welcome back. If you've been with us for a while, we uh, took a short break, but here we are. Our, our last event being the Bill and Melinda Gates interview, which has received about 50,000 views now across all of the platforms. If you missed it or any other in the series, you can see them on uschamberfoundation.org, Apple Podcasts, or of course, YouTube. If you're new, thanks for joining us. We have had a regular series where we're trying to help people think through this pandemic, both in terms of the public health emergency, but also about how to get back to work. What is life like beyond COVID-19? Something that we're all eager to get to think about. We've had experts from government and business and academia and nonprofits all on this program to help us think about each aspect, both of the pandemic, of return to work, and the lasting implications of this of this horrible situation. So today we're turning on what we can learn from companies on the ground who really never stopped working. What can we learn is they've had to adapt to this new situation for their customers and their employees and the tremendous products and services that they provide. They can help the rest of us return to the office safely and productively. This topic is of course extremely timely and particularly as we're having this horrific surge in the virus across the country. So thinking about it from the from the aspect of the economy of the business owner, of the customer, of the employee is just really important. And one of the things that we've been stressing at the chamber is this patchwork of different orders and different ordinances and different rules has made it really hard for employees and customers to feel safe, which has a direct impact, of course, on consumer confidence and therefore on the economy. You know, we've most recently been talking about the hodgepodge of mask rules and without a kind of national guideline based on data, based on public health that can then be implemented at the local level, businesses are just really getting in the right in the middle of this from employees who are mad that customers aren't wearing masks to customers who are mad that they're being made to wear masks. And so it's just one example of a place that we need to come together with consistent rules for public health and for economic health. So today, as I said, we're going to talk to three just tremendous business leaders who have been running companies and divisions through these complex times uh, in order to help both their company and the public and our country survive this and, and thrive at some point after. So we're really pleased to welcome today Rossanne Williams, who's Executive Vice President and President of Retail for Starbucks. Uh, she will be joined by Dario Gill, who is the Director of IBM Research, and by Louis Vega, who's President of Dow North America. We are going to take questions as always, so feel free to start populating the chat, and at the end, we'll bring all three speakers back for those questions. First, I'm going to ask each of them some questions in turn, and uh, as a big fan of the ladies' first idea, I'm going to start with Rossanne. Thank you for being with us today. You bet. Thank you for having us. We're really lucky to be here with you and fortunate to be learning with everyone because this is everyone listening and learning from one another. Well, that's a gracious thing to say. And of course, it's true, right? There's no playbook yeah, for yeah. any of this. And so, okay, so you have 30,000 retail stores, very small job, you're managing 30,000 retail stores across the globe. How would you describe decision making at Starbucks during this time? Mm -hmm. Well, we benefited from very early on setting very clear and uh, specific guidelines and principles that we were going to follow no matter what decisions that we were going to make. 
And those three principles have guided us basically for the last uh, five months, uh, based in facts and science. So it's ever evolving and we're always learning from one another as I opened. It's, this is an ongoing learning session for all of us. Um, and those three principles are really basic. The first one is partner and customer safety will always be our number one priority. Secondly, that we are gonna work closely with government uh, officials and experts on the facts and science on showing up and in, in putting together the very best in class safety precautions that we can in our stores. And lastly, that we have a responsibility to show up in our communities and be part of the change that needs to happen, be part of a beacon of hope to bring communities back together after all of this destruction and divisiveness and quite honestly, death. Um, so we, we see ourselves as a responsible citizen to come back in and help rebuild communities. So those three guiding principles have been really clear from day one and they are still in place today. You know, it's so interesting. I would say even in my little community, I have a 14 year old and I think going to Starbucks first with a mobile order or through a drive through has been a real lifeline to a normal life for her. I mean, I really understand what you mean by that. So yeah. given that you had, um, operations all over the globe. And of course, there were places that were hit before the United States. Did that help you think about operations here? And, and what did you learn overseas that might help people in our audience think about adapting their businesses? Mm -hmm. Yes, that, absolutely. You know, as you know, China was kind of the first outbreak and we learned so much from our uh, Chinese leadership team, Beling Duong is our CEO of China. We were in regular communications about all the facts and science they were learning. Um, obviously, uh, the government took a very different approach than our government did. So there were things that we could share back and forth between different communities of how fast COVID was spreading, what types of measures they took to close down stores and put safety precautions in place, especially around uh, contactless uh, interactions between partners and customers. So we were very, very fortunate to be to learn from Belinda and her team, as well as many other leaders across the globe, as every single country has been impacted by this. And so, again, as I started off this call, we are in a learning mode. We are talking with each other on a daily basis. We're sharing information. We're sharing best practices. And uh, that's why I think this conversation is so important for us to keep learning from one another, because we all bring something different to the conversation. And what do you think What's an example of a valuable lesson you think you learned from China or from another country abroad? Uh, facial coverings. Uh, I remember when I talked to Belinda in February, she said, you should start buying facial coverings because you're going to have to wear them. And at that time, I'm like, I don't think we're going to be wearing facial coverings anytime soon in this country. A few days later, we made the decision that we were going to move forward with decisions to close down cafes because we couldn't keep customers um, properly socially distancing with one another. And a few short weeks after that, we made the decision to ask our partners to wear facial coverings when they came to work, including many other health standards that we put in place to make sure that our partners are as safe as they possibly can be when they come to work every day. And hence our customers are as safe as they can be when they do business with us, whether it's outside a Starbucks store in a drive-through or mobile order and pay pickup, or whether they're in a store for grab and go, and in some situations, limited seating. So that, that leads me to another question, which is yeah. you've had this very interesting phased in kind of approach, right? What did you hear back from your partners and from your customers on that phased in approach? How did that help you? Yeah, so um, 
we have uh, we have from the very beginning asked for feedback. And again, this this learning environment I keep going back to. So we ask the same question to our partners every single week. Tell me on a scale of one to seven how comfortable you are with the training that you've received to put in the safety measures that we have. And every single week we monitor that to make sure that we're providing the right support for our partners that work in our stores. Um, and every single week we continue to score quite high on that scale. We also ask our customers two specific questions. The first question is, how safe did you feel coming to the Starbucks today? And uh, secondly is, uh, did you feel like your order was processed in a way that was safe for you to take it with you? And so we measure those three things every single day and we make sure that we are adapting to any feedback we get from our partners and our customers to make sure that uh, again through their lens and through their experience that they feel like coming into a Starbucks store whether they work here or whether they just want to come visit um, that they feel safe and any feedback they provide us it's brought right into the working team and uh, we remain extremely agile and we're allowing and, re and actually holding our field leaders responsible for making the decisions that are most appropriate for that specific community because as you mentioned earlier every single community is in a very different place right now and so really empowering our local leaders to make the right decision to support their communities and to create jobs for our people and to create that beacon of hope for communities is something that uh, we've worked very hard at doing. Did I read correctly that your CEO recently announced that you are going to require all customers in the U.S. to wear a face mask? That's correct. Uh -huh. And how do you, you know what I'm really struggling with, and I hear this from the small businesses in the chambers across the country. I noticed it yesterday at the grocery store. They have the same rule, but there's just a woman running around the aisles, up the down aisles, down the up aisles without the mask on. And I think we're all afraid to say anything that we're going to sound like a Karen, uh, as the kids all want to call us. And so right. is it put a lot of pressure on the local field or the local Starbucks to have mm -hmm. to tell their customer they're wrong? How do you train for that? Yeah. So the um, mandatory facial coverings actually goes into effect this Wednesday, July 15th. And so not all uh, communities across the country are currently enforcing that. But mm -hmm. as you know, there are states and many local municipalities that do require facial coverings. And up to this week, we've respectfully requested customers to come in um, wearing a facial covering, but we will move to a mandatory facial covering this Wednesday. And what we have done for this past week since we made the decision is we have training that's out in stores, training for each and every partner to respectfully request that the customer has to have a facial covering if they want to come into our store. We have options if they choose that they either do not want to wear a facial covering, which we're going to ask them to wait outside and we will bring their order to them outside of the store. Or if they just happen to forget a facial covering, uh, we're going to be offering uh, facial coverings to customers at our front doors when they come into our stores. And we, we really honestly believe that the facts and science lead us to make this decision again through those three very specific guidelines that I shared with you earlier, that if in fact we know that the science tells us today that wearing a facial covering protects other people from potentially um, spreading the coronavirus, then we have to stand up to that to say then in our stores we're wearing a mask to protect you, our customers, and we're going to ask our customers to wear a mask to respect our partners. And we believe based in the, in, the, in the science and the data that this is the right way forward um, and the training has been robust because as you can imagine and you mentioned earlier, uh, there are a lot of varying opinions about facial coverings and what they stand for, but we are going to go back to the facts and the science 
in creating the safest environment we can for both our partners and our customers. And we strongly believe that this is the right way forward. And we are going to continue to learn. We're going to listen to our partners and our customers. We're going to learn from them on uh, how this decision was made, how they feel coming into a store. But we have a high level of confidence, again, given those three basic guidelines that we've used this entire time, that it's the right decision for our company. Well, good for you. Um, I can promise you that our household will all be in our Starbucks. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much. So, so turning for a minute away from this, the, the issue of the moment to a broader strategy question, you know, Starbucks evolved as kind of a third place, right? Not quite home, not quite work, but this new experience. And a lot of the audience listening today and a lot of our members are, are having that, okay, our business model relies on an in-person experience of some sort, not just coming to get a product and leaving. And so how are you thinking about the future evolving, not just for Starbucks, but for all businesses that rely on that and a personal touch in-house experience? Yeah. I mean, I think we're all learning together. Uh, you know, for us at Starbucks, we believe uh, the facts and the science are going to continue to guide us. We know that uh, not touching your face, uh, washing your hands frequently, and wearing a facial covering is still the three best ways that we can help protect one another if we're in an enclosed area with one another. Um, and so I would just encourage all of us as business leaders to keep thinking about those basic facts and science and in our stores. Um, in our third place, we're going to continue to use what we learn on a daily basis to create an environment where we still can be um, socially together, but maybe not physically together within the distance uh, range. And uh, for us, as you know, if you've been into one of our stores that is in a grab and go, you know, we have very specific guidelines, just like many grocery stores do on where customers can stand. So we are we are socially together in a space but the physical distancing is so critically important. And I, I would just encourage all of us as we have businesses that rely on that person-to-person -person interaction, there are many tools and resources that we have right now that we know can um, you know, present a place, encourage a place that customers will feel safe to come in and have their, your people that work for you feel safe to come to work every day. And I think as long as we keep customer and partner safety at the top of the list, we will figure this out. It will be different and it will have a whole new world to go out and design and innovate and develop. And we're actually optimistic and excited about the future because it's a world that we never imagined five months ago that we would ever have to solve for. But there are plenty of opportunities ahead of us and possibilities of how we can return to being in proximity with one another and do it in a safe way. I think that's right. It's so interesting to think about what has to change right now that may go away after the pandemic versus mm -hmm. what possibilities this does this open change in the future, right? Do you imagine that you're learning things that even if even if you weren't forced for example to wear masks or, or be physically distant are there other things about your business that you're learning in this time that might lead to a longer term change mm -hmm. yeah so we we kind of talk about it as uh maybe plans that we had been working on five years from now kind of showed up on our front doorstep um, when covid showed up and so all of the great innovation around technology our mobile order and pay platform, our Starbucks rewards platform, and how we recognize and thank our customers for their loyalty, um, and all the products and services that we can provide is much different. And again, immense possibilities of what we're gonna be able to do to innovate in that space. 
you take a look at our store formats, we've already been testing convenience for uh, formats, which are basically you mobile order and pay, and then you walk up to the counter, get your drink and leave. That has been very, very successful. And uh, we are building and innovating our convenience models. And as you can imagine, convenience and safety is going to be top of mind for all of us. So we're actually just accelerating some of the learnings that we had already in, <clears throat> excuse me, that we already had in the in the works. It's just accelerated at a timeline that we never imagined that we would have to. But there are plenty of great opportunities for all of us that run businesses to take a look at um, where customers are going to want to meet us at and how do we then quickly learn together and get to that spot so we can stand back up our communities and bring back healthy, thriving communities because that's all of our responsibilities as uh, you know business leaders. I think that that's great. OK, I'm going to turn and bring uh, Dario Gill in. Thank you so much for being here. Talk to us about so, you know, when you think about IBM and your technological resources and AI and you know this this research that that you run, how are you using all of those you know supercomputers and and high tech to help combat COVID-19? Well, first of all, let me, uh, you know, thank you again uh, for inviting me and being part of this conversation and this dialogue. For us, when we uh, approach or respond to, to the pandemic, we were all equally, as, as General alluded, by, guided by a set of principles and actions that we could take. One was, of course, in the context of our employee safety and our community and our clients to be able to ensure that we had business continuity. Uh, the 350,000 IBMers uh, around the world are, you know, the force behind powering a lot of critical mission critical infrastructure in the world, banks and governments and telecommunications networks and beyond. So it was really imperative that we could apply our best technology to, you know, as 95% of our workforce was working remotely, that we could do that safely and ensure the continuity of all our partners. The second thread that we got then uh, really thinking is how could we provide trusted information, not only to IBMers, but to citizens around the world. And that's where we use, for example, the Weather Channel as a vehicle to provide local county level information in the context of the United States around cases, since people were used uh, to tapping into the app uh, for dealing with emergencies of a different context, which was weather emergencies. And that has been really, really successful, as well as applying AI. Uh, or Watson technology and, and Watson Assistant to be able to have CDC trained question answering uh, a system so that people could call in and understand uh, what was happening locally or in their state and gather information, even including things like uh, unemployment insurance and beyond. And then the third element was those are all adaptation mechanisms, but what could we do to accelerate discovery, to accelerate a path to a cure and new treatments? And that's where we brought forth uh, our supercomputing capacity and, and led to the creation of the COVID-19 High Performance Computing Consortium uh, as a means to be able to use computers to accelerate the rate of experimentation and the rate of discovery. It's, a, it, it's amazing to think about the opportunity there, right? And so let me ask you a specific question. Did you feel that those tools helped you as you were working internally? And then how did you deploy them to your own work? Yeah, well, they definitely helped us because, I mean, if you look at some of those elements of, for example, trusted information, to be able to provide that information for the uh, site critical employees that were coming every day 
to our, our work sites and to be able to then make science driven decisions and data driven decisions as to who should be returning and the safety and health protocols of each one of our sites, uh, we could leverage those technology. I mean, just to give you an example, uh, we use you know, technology from a product called Tririga to be able to use Wi-Fi signals that happen inside uh, or, or work locations to be able to understand in an anonymized fashion the relative density that is happening in our sites. And as we progressively bring more people into the sites, in the case that uh, you know somebody has been uh, infected, to be able to determine who else may have been exposed, right? You know, sort of like a uh, an assisted form of contact tracing uh, that can happen inside it. So we're constantly thinking of ways of where we're using that technology to make sure that we can ramp up and continue to scale our operations in a safe manner. Gosh, I have so many questions. Okay. <laughs> So let, let me start with something I think you said a second ago, which was that you were using some of these tools to decide who needed to come back. Is that what you said? Yeah, so so on that one, it's about, again, our philosophy around things that, that we do in a company that is based on information, information technology, is that if we have reliable data-driven decision-making, we can get to better outcomes. So for example, uh, for 350,000 employees, right, that 95% that working remotely. So today we have about now 10% that have come uh, on site. So to be able to make that determination of who are the first waves, uh, well, one dimension of it is related to productivity, right? We have measures of, for example, I work in the research laboratory or quantum computing experts need access to the facilities to be able to make progress around that. So there's data-driven decision-making that has to do with who would benefit the most from a productivity perspective. But then there's also things that have to do with who is an at-risk uh, you know, uh, employees around there. So now it's about how can we link, in this case, with the right consent, knowledge about potential preconditions or, or medical records, and be able to use that in analytics to be able to guide a phased approach to be able to come on site when that is appropriate. I'm going to ask you later, so you have a minute to think about it. I'm going to ask you later if you think a small business that's watching that doesn't have access to that kind of, uh, you know, computing power, if you have found certain lessons, I think you just alluded to one which might be productivity, certain lessons they may be able to apply to their own measures to figure out who should go back. But I'll let you think about that for a minute. Let me let me go back. You mentioned a minute ago this high performance computing consortium and um, talk to us about. So this is the US government, right? And an IBM team formed to try to figure out the how you use the fastest computer researchers to, to combat the virus. A, what have you found? And B, what's the role of global cooperation in that project? Yeah, so here's a basic idea. If you look at um, how do you discover something in science? I mean, historically it was kind of like a trial and error process, right? Scientists would engage through sort of like bench laboratory and, and trying to figure out if, if you could make inroads by experimentation. With the advent of computers in the 1950s and beyond, um, the idea was, hey, can we use computers to simulate experiments, to accelerate the rate at which we can do discovery? 
And that eventually led to the discovery, I mean, the advancement of this new tool that we call high performance computers. So think about them as supercomputers, things that maybe calculations that on a normal computer like we all use may take you months. But if you have these very large scale computers, you could do in a matter of days. So we have used these very successfully in the context of national laboratories and other research institutions for many decades. So in early March, we basically put forth the idea of not only making accessible IBM supercomputers in the context of uh, scientists and other researchers that would be interested, but the idea of joining forces. So that's when uh, we reach out to some of our colleagues in the US national laboratories that house many of the top supercomputers in the world. And then, um, in fact, uh, after we reach out to the Office of Science and Technology Policy and Michael Kratzios, who is the Chief Technology Officer in the United States, and we share with them the initiative that we had underway, in a matter of days, we reach out to uh, you know, other industry leaders like Microsoft and Amazon and Google and many others, as well as universities like MIT and RPI and beyond and NASA and the National Science Foundation, and we launched the consortium. And since then, what is really remarkable is, is the largest public-private partnership in the area of computing that has ever been created. Mm. We've aggregated now 600 petaflops, that may be a meaningless number, but it's basically, you know, we have aggregated now with over 50 partners, most of the top supercomputers in the world, and we have over 70 active projects now from all over the world, looking at everything from small molecule uh, design and selection that may target the spike protein of the virus to be able to deactivate it, to modeling uh, in epidemiology, to, for example, figure out a ways to make more efficient use of ventilators and many, many other projects. So it's really been sort of kind of remarkable institutional innovation in light of crisis. I mean, all of it was done without a single contract, mm -hmm. all out of the desire to collaborate with one another. That's so beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Uh, you know, one of the things that the chamber works on a great deal are some of the visa issues required to run some of the big research labs. And so we've been, been seeing some proposals about even suspending some of the visas in the, for the students who are here. How could that impact this work? Well, I'll give you, uh, I mean, just some, some general figures around it. I mean, having lived myself, uh, you know, I, I, I came to the United States, you know, for, for college and for grad school. Uh, you know, I grew up in, in Spain. And when you look at the percent of graduates, let's say in the area of computer science that have an advanced degree that are foreign born, we're talking on the order of 60%, right? Of like, for example, PhD graduates in computer science. So it is a matter of fact that anywhere between 40 and 60% of, for example, graduate degrees in the United States in the STEM field are foreign born. So when we uh, create disruptions in the continuity and the ability uh, to you know, continue their education and then join the workforce in the United States, um, it's a major, major issue and a major concern, right? So we're seeing this, you know, of course, affected uh, on, you know, all our colleagues and university collaborations that we have. And as we've seen, there's a major response from universities and others on, um, you know, on, on trying to figure out, you know, a more effective policy, frankly. It's just, it's a really, really important issue. We hear it across industry in all kinds of places. So your examples, I think, very important. Turning for a minute 
another thing that you have called for recently is is you've said scientists could really learn for how the military does readiness prep, right? And you've called for a science readiness reserve. What, what would that entail? What would the benefit of that be? Yeah, so the core idea going back to how do you prepare for something that is, you know, maybe a low probability event, but a very high impact event. And if you look at the military, they engage in planning activities that in their context, they call it, you know, war planning or, you know, scenario planning, right? Where they have to sort of look for and anticipate conflicts that they may have to engage that they do not wish for, but they have to be prepared for. And engaging in things like war games allows them to anticipate how would they respond if a crisis manifested. But then there's a second institutional idea, which is the idea of reserves that you get to mobilize in the context of a crisis that manifests. So the idea we put forth is what could we create a science readiness reserves? And it's a little bit inspired by this high performance computing consortia, which we're glad that we could come together, but we had to improvise the institutional aspect of how we would coordinate. So the thought is during moments of calm, we could figure out public sector and private sector divided perhaps by chapter where computing is an example of it, but there are many other areas that would be relevant. We would plan and coordinate ways in which we would work together in the midst of a crisis. And on a volunteer basis, different institutions and scientists would say I'm part of the reserves. And if the reserves was then activated, we would have a known way to work with each other very much like happens in the context of the military, but this in this case tapping into the expertise and talent that is distributed between the private sector and public sector in the R&D enterprise of the nation. Super cool. That is really interesting. We're going to have to have you back on to talk about that another time too, because we could go we could go further on that. But let me ask you the same question I asked Roseanne here before we turn and bring uh, Lewis in. When you think about how this has speeded up innovation, right? If it's pulled virtual work forward or it's pulled, you know, Rossanne said it, Starbucks plans that were five years in the future forward. What do you think about? What do you see being pulled forward in terms of the adoption of innovative technologies, et cetera, that might be moving faster than it otherwise would have? Well, I have two, two sort of like urgency related words around that. One, I've seen like this urgency of science, like I think it's manifest clearly that if we could discover faster, we could touch for the better every you know person on Earth. So that is definitely going to have to be accelerated. And in the context of business is the urgency of digital. And I could not agree more that things that had been in the cards to be able to roll out and execute over five years or a decade now are being done like, you know, in a matter of months. So the digital transformation and what it's going to mean in terms of how we reach customers, you know, how do we enable, you know, much more flexible and adaptive supply chains and beyond is something that, you know, it's just being changed, right? The order of priority and the level of investment that is going to take place. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And, and I think it's part of what we're all trying to think of now, right, is what are the changes that are permanent? How has this changed life in a way that we can't see as, as we look so close in and near term in this moment? Uh, well, thank you for that. And we have more questions for you coming back. But let me bring in Louis Vega for a minute, who's the president of Dow. Uh, thank you for being with us. We want to ask you, so you have 36,000 employees. There are manufacturing products in 31 countries. As I understand it, you have about half of them who never who never left. And so what can businesses learn 
from you and the way that you have continued operation through this crisis. Well, absolutely. Good afternoon, and thank you for uh, including our voices here. And, and as Roxanne uh, mentioned uh, during her time with us, uh, conversations like these are critical because we all continue to learn from each other. Uh, because we not, not, no one of us have all the answers, but as we listen and learn from others, uh, we're able to tailor those that meet our, our needs and our culture. So yes, we have 14,000 um, women and men of Dow uh, going to work in their uh, regular workplace every day um, throughout the pandemic across the world. And what we have uh, learned from them is as critical as what we um, are learning from the governments or the communities in which they operate. And so we have taken um, real live, um, you know, there are plans on paper, and then once you get them on into um, actuality, things need to change. And so our employees that have been going to work for those uh, for all those days where those of us who have been working from home have had the uh, not had to go into the office or into a, a location. Um, we're learning everything from what survey questions um, work, what survey, how often we need to change those survey questions because everyone coming into a facility is tested for temperature. Um, they go through a series of questions to make sure that they're not at, at high risk. Um, and those questions change depending on the location or what's going on around us, Memorial Day, 4th of July, et cetera. Um, and we're taking those learnings as well as how they work with each other. A lot of our areas are very close um, together. They're control rooms, they're operators. So how do we ensure that our uh, plans on paper are working in actuality? It's actually we're learning from them and putting them into our policies. Uh, so it's been a, a great uh, collaboration between those working from home and those working from their regular workplaces. And you've been really generous, I think, in putting together this return to workplace playbook where you've kind of cataloged what you've learned so other businesses can learn from it as well. And we're going to post that, a, a link to it on, on our website, on the Foundation website. But what are the overarching themes of that playbook? So the playbook essentially is our what works for our company and our culture, and I guess that's uh, one of the the learnings or takeaways is that we can get ideas from others, we can have people suggest things, but if it's not in your company's culture, or if you're not speaking to and working with employees in the manner in which you normally do, um, it's not going to have a success rate, right? So our playbook uh, that we have put together and shared, and thank you for posting that. Uh, happy to, to, to go into details on any pieces of it. But essentially, you'll find through there is no stones left unturned and collaboration. Collaboration across our supply chain because just because our 14,000 employees uh, were essential to operations to keep our essential products moving, the supply chain had to stay intact. And how do we work with our customers and our suppliers to ensure that governments kept everyone together um, and allowed supply chains to supply each other? Um, us operating our own wouldn't have worked very long um, if we didn't have our uh, suppliers and customers um, able to do business with us. 
So um, the collaboration work continues to local, state, and um, federal uh, governments. Not all locations are created equal, not all jurisdictions are the same, and not all challenges are the same for our employees. And so ensuring that we're collaborating across all stakeholders to ensure that we're doing everything we need to um, to keep everyone safe and operating efficiently. And then finally, um, the power of, uh, of digitalization and, and the IT backbone. You know, we, we, we sent everyone home, um, those that weren't going to be in our manufacturing sites, we sent them all home on a Friday and life was at normal as far as efficiency of delivering work product by Monday. And, and that didn't come because uh, we overnight went and purchased uh, uh, some kind of uh, tools to allow us. It's because our company has been investing in those uh, tools to allow us to work collaboratively no matter where we are in the world. We just didn't realize they were going to be so important to us um, at this juncture uh, just to work amongst each other within the same regions and states. You know, you, you brought up PPE and it's impossible for you to not pick that up for a second. You know, when you think about supply chains, frequently people think about the finished product or when you think about PPE, you think about the finished product. But really, the number of components that go into a mask or a gown, let alone what the types of equipment you need to distribute a vaccine or therapeutics, I mean, the supply chain issues are complex, right? And in a normal time, let alone now. And so what do you think about both the state of the global supply chain, but also what that tells us about international trade policy? Well, thankfully, uh, organizations like the Chamber have been uh, working to ensure that uh, that trade and issues of trade are front and center. And, and as, as people have differing opinions on them, you're really helping to drive to the nitty-gritty. And the nitty-gritty is, is that large or small, we all depend on one another. And supply chains, um, we sometimes think of as just one country versus another when we start to talk about trade uh, disputes. But frankly, getting um, uh, things like hand sanitizers from one state to the other, um, getting the uh, inputs needed um, that we rely on because we're an integrated company. So what is uh, manufactured in Alabama plays an important role in Michigan that later plays an important role in Texas that then gets um, sent somewhere else in the world as well. So supply chain and supply chain integration is critical to companies like ours. And COVID did pose a lot of challenges, uh, but what it mostly made us um, realize is that we can have partners at every at every turn, but without a strong infrastructure um, for everybody, um, it didn't it, it didn't help that we had the best infrastructure or that uh, supplier X had the best infrastructure. It was getting things point to point. Uh, earlier, when we were talking about masks, uh, we started ordering masks for our North American. Um, population in December, I believe. And um, when we finally received um, some of those into February, we had, we had already found other supplies and other ways. We were manufacturing 
um, face shields, for example. We it was an open source uh, um, uh, discovery and delivery that we've done, so that people can uh, hopefully uh, get access to uh, low cost face shields and other products. Is that if we cannot work um, collaboratively across the state lines or even um, city lines, that we're going to have um, a lot of um, complications that we really don't need to. We're making them up by these patchwork of uh, regulations and expectations that are coming. So back to that collaboration work, working with our customers, our supply chains, our governments to ensure that everyone understood the importance at all of all those um, input points and products that maybe don't make it to the top of everyone's uh, mind. Yeah, I mean, as you know, it's and thank you for saying so. It's a really important issue at the at the top of the chamber's list, and I think, you know, another thing the chamber spends a lot of time doing is promoting the good that business does in society. And these, you're all three companies that have a remarkable reputation for corporate citizenship. And I think you just mentioned that face shield, and you know, you did developed this simplified face shield that was going to help healthcare workers, and then you made the uh, design public for anyone to use. It was a really wonderful thing that I think uh, Dow did for the public good. What are other ways that you are supporting communities at this time that might be examples or best practices for other companies to follow? Well, thank you for that. Yes, in, in addition to products, so we also, we don't uh, normally make hand sanitizers, um, but we uh, saw a need um, also saw that a key ingredient was um, tight or short, um, and so our scientists went quickly to work and readjusted what was uh, needed to come up to make an effective and uh, safe sanitizer, uh, hand sanitizer, and got got it out to our hospitals, governments, uh, national guards, etc., uh, so that we can help. So didn't put it out on the market, but uh, made sure we got it into the places in, in which it's needed. I think as well, um, our organizations that we work with, our NGOs, our nonprofits that are doing work across uh, um, issues of diversity or uh, or environmental, you know, they too um, needed um, support. And so the company, in addition to a three million dollar uh, grant to uh, World Health Organization for global operations, we also have a million dollar. Uh, grant for lo local um, organizations, and we started an employee match program as well for um, because we have some really generous employees um, who wanted to um, give dollars as well. Um, in addition to to that new, if you would, uh, money, we started um, putting out uh, what we had already committed to. Maybe we normally pay someone in October for a for a sponsorship or for a partnership, uh, we move those up um, and try to get them out the doors as quickly as possible, knowing that they were going to be challenged as well. And they're trying to keep the doors open. They're playing critical uh, support in uh, in the communities in which we operate, and we wanted to help there. So there are a lot of ways to do it, um, and we just uh, listen to our employees, uh, listen to the needs of the community, and and started to act as as we could. Let me ask for your last question before we go to some audience questions, the same question I asked your colleagues on this panel, which is, 
know, what have you seen in terms of innovation that you think sticks? What have you learned about some key trends that you think uh, are predictions of kind of the big changes on the horizon? Yeah, as as um, as Dr. Gill mentioned, you know, the the ability to quickly innovate without being um, uh, cohabitating in a lab is a critical um, developmental need that's going to be in the back of uh, of uh, technology and and as well as uh, the ability to collaborate. Um, with our customers and to see into their operations because a lot of the times we're also helping troubleshoot and with no one moving, uh, no travel allowed um, by the company um, and customers having um, key issues, we needed to find a way to be able to see in um, to their operations so that they were a we were able to help them, uh, they were able to get back up and running and they can provide the critical um, uh, products that uh, that their companies did, and so we had a, a lot of a great uh, work in that space. Uh, there's more to do there, um, and I am happy to say that our customer um, um, experience numbers uh, continue to rise. Our customer satisfaction through this time has gone up, and I'd like to say it's because the women and men of Dow really stepped up and work to figure out how not only to help ourselves um, navigate through this crisis, but to help um, our partners and friends and stakeholders as well. Thank you for that. Uh, we're gonna do a really quick lightning round. So I want like a one or two sentence answer from each of you. This is a, a question that I always like to ask our guests because I was asked during an interview. And so I feel compelled to put other people on the spot now. So the last interview we did was Bill and Melinda Gates. And I asked this question, which I'm gonna ask you, which is what's changed in your life personally? You know, how, what have you, have you learned something about yourself or your family or your work during this time of working in such a different way? And Melinda Gates said she's never wearing high heels again. That's what she learned. And so um, let's see, uh, uh, Dr. Gill, let's start with you. Have you learned anything about yourself in this process? Yeah, then I, I'm never going to complain about traveling again. Like, <laughs> sure. and, uh, you know, but uh, seriously about it, I used to complain about how much I travel and the airports and so on, but not being able to see my family uh, in Spain and so on and not being able to travel is, is just something I cannot wait for that day. So I did learn that. I like that. How about you, Rossanne? You know, I learned how extremely grateful I am for everything that I'm blessed with in my life, my family, my friends, my work, a company that I am proud to work for. And, and I really every day just keep grounded in the gratefulness of life. And that's been a real gift for me. It is a gift. How about you, Lewis? Oh, that's, uh, Rosani, that's, that's uh, definitely um, what I was also gonna say. So what I'll do is in addition say, I used to be the guy who said, I, I have to work around people. I'm not a work from home uh, type of personality. Uh, what I've uh, learned about myself is that um, I am able uh, to do so, um, but to do so in a way of still being connected to everyone who's important to me, whether inside the company or outside of the company. Um, and that has been um, a, a very special uh, learning through this crisis is uh, our ability to, um, we'll say, maybe care more 
slowed, we've slowed down enough so we can uh, take a step back and care more for those that we uh, that we love uh, and respect and, and worry about. That's a beautiful thing. You know, we've even noticed at the chamber, the culture is seeming to get closer and better and uh, being easier to get to know people and silos coming down. I mean, things we absolutely would not have predicted. Uh, it's going to be fascinating to, to study it one of these days. So let me ask you some of the audience questions that are coming in. You know, Rossanne, I'm going to start with you. One of the um, things that we hear a lot about is that big companies are able to spend a little bit money, have a little bit more research, have a few more resources to throw at understanding how best to adapt to this new time. And one of the questions we're being asked from the audience is, you know, they just don't have the expertise or the resources to train their employees how to communicate with customers about putting on masks and wondering if that might be something at some point Starbucks is willing to share in kind of a playbook way for other businesses. Absolutely. We'd be happy to help in any way we possibly can. And we do recognize that because of the size and the global footprint of our company, that we do have resources that many smaller businesses don't have access to. So we have published a number of different playbooks, especially the playbook on how we made decisions on how we were going to close down our cafes or go to drive through only format. Um, and if you want to reach out to me or anyone here at Starbucks, I can make sure that whatever questions you might have, um, we're open source. Again, this is a learning environment for all of us that have resources to share with others and to continue learning together on this new journey that we're on. That's of you, and we will out to you to that we're linked to your playbooks as well. And particularly this issue, we are getting a lot of questions about how do you talk to your customers in this time and show them respect and grace and then focus on the science and data of, of how we need them to behave in this time. So we'll definitely follow up with you. Uh, let's see, uh, Dr. Gale, I warned you that I was coming back to this question and it is, okay, so you could use science to figure out how to prioritize who comes back in what order. If you can only have a small percentage back to keep physical distance and safety, uh, you could use science to do that. Is there learning in that that would help smaller businesses figure out how to phase people back in? Well, I mean, the, the data types that we use to guide those decisions, they are in sort of five dimensions. We look at local COVID-19 infection rates and trends, and those are publicly available. I gave an example, I mean, you know, through a variety of sources, but you can find them as well through uh, the Weather Channel as an example. Employee symptoms and test results. If tests are not available, at least uh, daily self-screening. Uh, monitoring of our employees. I mean, we're all doing that. I think it was alluded in all in all of us reporting to that. That can make a difference, right? Every day, a self-check and looking at that. Um, the third is if you have access or information, of course, for an employee directly around, um, you know, health status and risk factors that may be present. That's really important as well to assess. Best done in the local context of, of a manager and protecting the uh, confidentiality, of course. The fourth is the compliance with state and local regulations, right, that we bring into the table. And then the fifth is any kind of additional business consideration that you want to put on top. So we take those five data sources and that is the basis by which we build uh, our models for guiding decision making. But even if you didn't have access to the model, at least have that sort of like a checklist criteria to be able to make that determination so that it's a structured way of approaching the problem. 
That's really helpful. Thank you for saying that. And I think we'll document that going forward as well. Um, Lewis, coming to you for a second, we have an audience question that says, how do you feel specifically about the supply chain over the next couple of months? How robust is it? You know, it's 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 rebounded uh, quite well over the last couple of months as as um, companies and states and localities um, began to find their way to operate um, in this new COVID area. I do think that it'll be it, it's going to be at least uh, the rest of the year, uh, if not a little more for us to get back to some kind of norm, but I, I, I use that norm in, in quotations because we're readjusting the way our business model works as we speak, as we learn, as we understand. And so supply chain uh, that we know knew of prior uh, to COVID will probably uh, continue to be challenged for uh, quite some time, um, but could be replaced with different ways for us to um, move um, our product, our IT, um, and our expertise around. Uh, I did also want to say um, on the smaller, uh, don't have a lot of uh, resources to do what some of our, us uh, are able to do. Um, you know, we've got 50 plus locations that are uh, putting together their individual plans that then come to our crisis management team, which, which I lead, um, that answers all those questions that Dr. Gill just, um, just articulated or those type of answers, including where, do you, where, does, your work, where does your workforce come from? Um, are, they, are they local to the location? Um, do they drive um, from different parts? Because, you know, in, in Louisiana, we have two sites um, not very far from one another, but two very different situations. And so it was really important for us not to just have blanket um, um, responses or policies, but really understand what each site um, was facing, what each site needed, and the precautions um, uh, around that that were applicable to that location. So we're a large corporation, but our sites, uh, we're talking um, anywhere from 25 people to uh, to, to thousands. That's that's an interesting point, and it, it's another reason that the playbooks are probably important for people to look at and and look for the learnings and how they can apply them. Uh, you know, a question we get a lot at the at the chamber is from smaller businesses that are very concerned about being sued by their employees for getting sick at work. You know, the studies continue to show that more half more than half of employees say they would sue their employer if they got sick at work. And so, one of the audience questions is, do you have any tips for that? Do you have any tips on how to avoid that or how you're thinking about it? And so, are any any of the three of you up for taking that one? I'm, I'm happy to share what our approach here at Starbucks has been and will continue to be. Um, as I shared earlier, we had those three guiding principles and the first principle is keeping and providing the safest possible environment for our partners to come to work and provide that safe environment for our customers as well. So working with, uh, again, local health experts and government officials, We've implemented a number of safety standards in our stores that I'm happy to share with anybody that would like to. Again, it's open sourced. Um, everything from in the very, very early days, um, you know, additional cleaning and high frequency areas, 
washing your hands uh, every 30 minutes for at least 20 seconds and not touching your face. Those are still, and, and of course, pre practicing social distancing and or physical distancing within our stores. Um, and we practice those same things today. And in addition to that, as you have seen, if you've been into a Starbucks lately, we have uh, shields between customers and partners and shields between partners and partners to make sure that we're not sharing um, any droplets that could be possibly infected. Um, and we're also looking at airflow and just opening a door and a window with the current understanding of the facts and science um, significantly reduces the, the chance that you would catch an infected droplet from someone that you're in close proximity to for longer than 10 minutes at a time. So there are very basic things and not necessarily expensive things, but it's the practice of implementing those safety standards in our stores, as well as training our partners to make sure that they understand how to do those each and every day with all the support that they will need with all the facts and science behind why we're making those decisions. Um, and again, happy to share any of that with anyone else that might be running a retail type format. No, it, oh, please go ahead. I'll just say it, it, it applies to non-retail as well. I mean, deliberate uh, data-based transparent uh, decisions um, is what everyone needs. And so the communication amongst uh, the employee um, population is key. Um, weekly, every other week from uh, our CEO uh, to myself to site leaders, constantly helping people understand our very deliberate process for decision making and everything that we're doing to ensure their safety upon return um, is very important because from those conversations, we get other questions or ideas um, for us to be able to use this time where uh, maybe you're not at your regular workplace, you're working from home, uh, to be able to address those um, in, a, in a timely fashion and, and be ready for uh, when we do start welcoming um, others back to our office buildings. I think that's right. And I think that the summary is really of what you're saying and what we're hearing from other business leaders is use public health data, use science, document what you're using, have specific and consistent guidelines, train, communicate. We're all doing the best we can, right? And I, I just have to say and wrap up here, I've really loved this program. I loved the grateful heart piece. I loved the urgency of science piece. That's a fantastic phrase. Um, this concept of being socially together but physically distant is, is just a great uh, phrase that we should all just be plagiarizing completely from you, Rossanne. It was it was terrific. Uh, this has been a great program. You've been very, very helpful, I think, to our audience. And I want to thank the audience for joining us and for uh, posting such great questions. We commit to putting all of these resources on the U.S. Chamber Foundation's website, and we hope that it will help you continue to serve your communities and your families and your employees and our country. We are hosting a very special Path Forward this Friday. It'll be at 11 o'clock with Dr. Fauci. Um, I don't think he needs an introduction, so I won't tell you what he's going to talk about, but we're looking forward to having Dr. Fauci on Friday, and I hope that you'll be able to join us even though it's twice in one week. We'll, we'll make it worth your while. So with an additional thank you to our panelists for making this a special event, uh, we'll ask you all to stay safe and wash your hands, and we'll see you Friday.